0: Hello everyone, welcome to episode 14 of Gossip, a podcast series where we discuss and try to better understand alternative perspectives on issues. The podcast series is part of Chris Network's ongoing efforts to create a safer space for discourse on gender inequality issues and in human rights. My name is Angela with us and I'll be your host for today. Our topic today is on misogyny. Should it be considered hate speech? To help us unpack this question are our guest speakers... Nalini Alumalai of Article 19, an international organization working on freedom of expression, and Bharati Salvam, Senior Research Officer at Women's Aid Organization, an organization that works on domestic violence and related women's rights issues. Welcome to you both, Nalini and Bharati. Thank
1: you for having us. Thank Hi,
2: thank you.
0: So gender equality in freedom of expression remains a distant goal. Uh, many people take this for granted. They think everybody has the right to speech but gendered censorship is pervasive online and offline. We've seen women's voices suppressed, controlled or punished explicitly by laws, policies and discriminatory practices, and implicitly by social attitudes, cultural norms and patriarchal values. In fact, the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Opinion and Expression, Irene Khan, in a statement of 18 October 2021 to the United Nations, stressed how sexism and misogyny are dominant factors in gendered censorship. she recommended strongly that taking a gender-sensitive approach to the right to freedom of expression, UN human rights bodies should make clear that gender-based hate speech is prohibited under international law in the same way as religious or racial hatred. Nalini, to you first, right? Yeah. What? What were the reactions of state leaders to this statement by Irene Khan? Should sexism and misogyny be considered hate speech and criminalised?
1: I don't know how the government reacted, but of course, like, in the context of Malaysia, we know there's no difference, right? Um, I I read the report, and then what bring my attention to was, like, how she took a feminist perspective for the entire document. And I think in terms of when we talk about freedom of expression and gender, it always lacking that feminist perspective in the reports, right? So this is the first time and actually she's using the feminist perspective and talking about freedom of expression and gender expression as well. So I think that is a good start. Um, I think it was lacking for many years, right, these sort of discussions and he's happy to see that, you know, the uh, the Special rapporteur actually took that on and, and talked about it. And she talked about a lot of issues, right? Um, what I don't want to, us to be trapped into is like looking into the terminology of hate speech, which we don't have, a, you know, a proper definition under the international law. But what most important came out of the whole report or what Irene can't say about the issues that we're talking about gender uh, expressions or censorship or gender disinformation is actually contributed by the root causes of how the women or how gender is actually be seen, right, in the world, like what are the position of women in the society, and the root causes is basically, there's no equality, right, and she spoke about that in a very lengthy way, how that root causes actually contributed to the misogyny and sexism that exists today, online or offline, these are the root causes, and I think she wants us to address that, in you know, in our work and everything, um, and that's why I think that in, the report is important, because it's not just about talking about gender expression online or how censorship, but she actually saying that if you tackle that, if you counter that root causes, and then you can actually counter hate speech, gender hate speech, you, you can counter any hate speech that we have because equality is the main factor why we have the hate speech.
0: And, and I really like your point about the fact that uh, this is the first time there's a feminist analysis, right, on freedom of expression by the UN Special Rapporteur. You know, you talked about the root causes, if If I'm not mistaken there was there was, there was some kind of backlash mm. to what she was saying and and maybe people didn't uh, listen carefully. It was straight away sexism and misogyny. you can't criminalize that mm. you mm. know mm. this is so difficult right mm. because it is it is sort of normalized mm. it is normalized, it is accepted in fact, um, we took a long time to fight for domestic violence act mm-hmm. you know. So, so, to Bharati, as someone working with Women's Aid Organization, it's, you know, it's over like, uh, what, three decades?
2: <laughs> <laughs> we, we just celebrated the 40th anniversary. Yeah,
0: exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and, and we know that sexism and misogyny are some of the contributing factors to you know, how violence takes place against women, other forms of abuses, the discrimination, the stigmatization. In fact, there are many observations around the world where you know sexist cultures are rising and then you know it's because of exploitation and marketization of women's bodies and sexist imagery and misogyny is rising also due to the rise of extremism. So what can you say about this normalization of sexism? Has it given rise to misogyny we see today? Okay
2: (laughs) it's a loaded question it's a lengthy question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so first, maybe we can or oh, decipher or understand what is sexism right uh, which is rooted in prejudiced attitudes and uh, discriminatory practices based on sex or gender and uh, we see that uh, while, while it' impacts all genders, it disproportionately affects women, girls, and marginalized gender law, or the non-binary community right and which creates socioeconomic and cultural disparities right. And obviously, this inequality or ideology or practices uh, fosters gender-based violence and also, of course, hate crimes as well. Right? Uh, so to, to set the base or to, to set the context, this somehow influences this kind of uh, issues that we're going to talk about. So the normalization happens. Due to various reasons, I think something that not commonly discussed is that institutions in society, whether it's religion or family, media, these are the more intimate or everyday institutions that uh, conveys or reinforces whether it's uh, sexism or misogynist conversation or patriarchal views, you know. And uh, those who are exposed to this quite repeatedly or or on everyday basis somehow internalise, whether consciously or unconsciously, and then they convey it across generations and so on and so forth. So that's somehow, I feel, where normalization happens on a day-to-day basis.
0: Okay, so so we know normalization happens because of these institutions, right? Family is such a huge influence on us, no? Tells us how to think, uh, even tells boys not to cry, right? I I think the public don't really understand sexism. Mm -hmm. They don't really understand misogyny. Um, And when we say, if we want to sort of, protect people from that kind of uh, violence, right? It is, it is a form of abuse. How do we do that when we don't have laws criminalising such uh, speech? Uh, as Bharati, you mentioned, it, it affects uh, marginalised peoples, right? So people who are part of the LGBTIQ community, who identify as such, uh, who, who can also be like migrant workers, refugees, etc. I mean, they face also this kind of sexism and misogyny. I guess the, the question then is... What are the examples, what are the everyday examples that you think you could share that could speak to people and say, and then help them uh, identify like, hey, yeah, you know, I've actually engaged in in sexist speech. I've actually engaged in misogynistic speech.
1: When we were young, um, I think my mom very consciously taught us like how, um, you know, both gender in in the house, right? We have to wash our own plates, for example. Um, there's no such thing like my brother put it there then I have to wash for him like like you know they actually do their own work so many people who came to my house when I told them like actually in my house my brothers do the uh, like washing the plates my brother actually washing the clothes they actually clean up the house um, then we just you know we just have to like you know they cannot cook like us right like deliciously but they can cook but they're not like very delicious right so the only thing they will tell us like can you please cook but we will do everything else so when people come to a house actually my brothers will bring the coffee to the guests, it's not us, you know, so it's from the young, we were like taught in that way. So I think one of the things that I can reflect from my family is like how my mom actually contributed for that Gap, you know, shouldn't mm. have gap uh, within the gender in the house. So she actually asked her to treat each other equally. So I think it's all like from young it was taught to us, and now we have like the younger generation in my house, like my niece and nephews, right? It's something that I do every time I go back. It's like as lesson. So they, the first day I meet them, so they will, you know, like charita, whatever happened in the school. And then I have to pause them and say, like, do you know this and do you know that you shouldn't treat women like this, you shouldn't talk to girls like this because it's something that's ongoing and I'm not expecting them to change like within like, you know, overnight but it's something that I've been doing since they were young. I teach them from like good touch to bad touch to how to talk to women to how to talk to the girls and stuff like I think this is something that You know, I I say it in a very positive way from my own experience, like how it can start this whole conversation and how it actually can reduce how women and men are being treated in the society, right? Because not only women are now facing all sort of these traditional issues, but also men who is actually different from other men, right? Like toxic, masculinity is one of the d- discussions. So if men look not like other men who's very look stronger and everything, they also get the same kind of treatment. they also also been discriminated. So I have, you know, started the conversation, at least in my household, like how to respect each other regardless how you look, how people are you know, uh, identifying themselves. And for that, there should be education as well, right? Because mm. people need to understand this is sexism. It's not something that our parents who have no education about that can talk about but our generation we can talk about so some of my like I'm in my 40s now so some of my friends are mothers or fathers right so they actually have some sort of exposure to these issues and they should start talk about it you know and I think that's where it starts in my opinion yeah
0: yeah thanks for that because the family is so important but we also know that there are families where it's not even a safe space, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you've been so fortunate. I, th- I think uh, your mother is a great woman. Yeah, teaches. she is. Yeah. Because, because a lot of parents actually shy away yeah. from teaching sons what is the right behaviour.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, they they fall back to, oh, boys can do whatever they like. Mm-hmm. Boys will be boys. This yeah. is the phrase, right? Yeah. Or, you know, in Malay, we have this phrase where... Oh, Kerja perempuan Yeah Mm -hmm. Right It becomes so stereotype Right You can't do kerja perempuan If you're a guy (laughs) Just to add
1: Like my mom also Like most of the important things That she taught us Like there shouldn't be Any decision made in the house Without presence of The woman in the house So she actually Basically called all of us Saying that you have to be here When we are making decisions So that's how we all Also empowered Within the household Where your parents are also, you know, giving that opportunity, access to, for us to make the decision, you know, so it's very important. In that yeah, way.
0: that culture of equality, right, yeah. to start from the home and the family, it's yeah. so important. So, Bharati, what about you, like, in terms of, because maybe at a more macro scale, right, like uh, dealing with issues, dealing with the complexities, uh, the institutions of government mm-hmm. and, the, and the kind of narratives that are put out or the messages that come out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. First I would like to echo whatever that she said. I mean she's in her forties, I've just entered thirties. <laughs> like, I've known her since I was nine, so we feel like <laughs> so yeah. I mean, of course this is the micro skill. the family plays an important role, whether it's to reinforce gender stereotypes or to counter that. But on institutional level or the law lawmakers or the policy policymakers, they too play a role. And Malaysia is not short of examples, right? We have seen that over and over again. For example, Kadam and Tribasar. <laughs> so I, I I believe there are there are so many examples where he mentioned something about Teresa Kok uh, in one of the parliament sittings and the Sikh constituency. They don't require a male leader and female lacks uh, leadership quality. And these are the kind of narratives they go around preaching in their what they call election campaigns and so on and so forth and uh, that is somehow translated to micro levels as well i think it's somehow an infection or expansion of this misogynistic or the patriarchal views no no ways i mean no two ways about it and uh, and they get away with these sexist remarks i mean it's it's a viral issues from some factions but it's not widely discussed or there's no repercussions or punishments for that right um, especially because they come with power and privilege and so on and so forth the benevolent sexism you know calling them imparting or conveying seemingly positive attitudes yet reinforces traditional gender roles you know uh, praising feminine stereotype attributes like being motherly or nurturing as if men can't be or they shouldn't be and if yeah, they are yeah. then then they are you know ridiculed, ridiculed or made a mockery of it right Uh, and thinking that women are naturally kind, pure, and innocent. This kind of stereotypes, you know, again and again reinforce this benevolent sexism. And of course, there's hostile sexism, which is outright, or more violent, or belittling, criticizing, uh, or harassing, you know, catcalling, and so on and so forth.
0: That that's really interesting. The benevolent um, sexism, <laughs> as yeah. if like, you're being kind. Yeah. Uh, but you you you're praising the woman for her qualities, so-called. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you you sort of telling her stay in your place. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that kind of messaging people need to sort of be more sensitive about. You know, like how do we move against this normalization? Right. How do we move against this acceptance of? This is the kind of speech that is every day. This is, this is normal. Like most people would say this is normal. Mm. You know, biasa mm. you know. But how do we move against that normalisation before it becomes misogyny, right? Before mm. it becomes so hate-centric. You know, the, the, the way that women leaders or women political candidates have been treated in the general elections, the last general elections, you know, mm. uh, to the point where they are sexualized. So what, what can we do to move against this normalisation?
1: it starts with to respect each other like you know there's like you just have to see each other equal you know I, it start from, like, respecting people for who they are and, like, regardless of the gender, right? Um, so the equality is comes with, like, how you treat the person as well, like, regardless of their background and everything. But also how to go away from this normalising is also first we have to recognise the issue that we have. You know, sometimes people will say that, um, but this is, like, you know, it's already there, why you even, you know, it's going to be there forever anyway, kind of attitude. But I think we have to first recognise how dangerous it could be in future, or oh, it's already is dangerous, right? Because we can see younger generation, young boys and girls also. Because patriarchal is also, you know, women can be patriarchal too. Girls mm, can be patriarchal exactly. too. Like for example, this this sentence that people always use against women: "Women are the enemy of the women." For example, it also something that patriarchal communities that one who perpetrated that, right? So that we don't get to, you know, support each other and everything. And it's totally different from our own experience, like how women actually been helping other women to you know, to empower ourselves, or to grow up, or to be successful and stuff like that. So that sort of stories need to be told more. How actually the empowering each other from from women perspective is very important. That stories you know also that there are there, but it has to be more. Like the the narrative that we want to you know uh, we want to put forward, it has to be like really good stories of how women are actually empowering each other. You know that sort of stuff. I I can say like sometimes when we say like no, my friends, my female friends are the most important people who actually for me to be like you know uh, for for where I am and to have my knowledge or anything, how they supported me, this very cynical about it. Are you sure there's no jealousy between you and you know your friends? Like what? What's the point? Like there's no because none of them are from my field. I don't have to feel jealous about each other. And actually, I'm happy if one of us are every one of us are successful. So when we told that nobody wants to you know to to believe the story, and I think the normalization also have to start within uh, women and also LGBT community. Start start believing we are equal you know start believing exactly start believing we are equal it's not like something that that was like a law, but it was you know we born with it so start believing you are equal to you know your another gender and that is very important because i think i think people don't believe they are equal because of the patriarchal system because mm. of the gender stereotypes, because the condition that we all live in they don't believe but we are you know and i think we need to start countering these speeches especially gender stereotypes and everything in our normal conversation we can just we have to counter the even if it's your colleague you know sometimes they can make mistakes without knowing like they are making jokes, but then without knowing it's a sexism, right? Mm. It's actually our job to say that, hello, let's stop here, you know, this is sexism. And I think that will put people in a place, you know, saying that, okay, I shouldn't say this anymore.
0: So, Bharati, as as a, okay, sorry to put you on the spot, but as a guy, (laughs) (laughs) as a guy, I mean, you know, from your own personal experience, because I'm sure there are lots of challenges, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a particular ideology or you believe in human rights etc and you stand on certain principles and then you go into a group of guys who are not as sensitized right Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are personal challenges as well so how do you deal with going against that
2: normalization Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's very challenging because it's not only friends, it's also family. I think these are the two most difficult groups for you (laughs) to put any ideas against because, you you, you know, it's (laughs) the most difficult because, you know, they are having problematic views, ideologies, you know, the way they practice, even the conversation. And and sometimes you are so agitated, you are so frustrated. (laughs) Uh, So sometimes you just call it out, you know, sometimes you just call it out, say, you know, I think... Like, like what Malini said, you know, I think this is something that's not uh, making sense or this is not how you should, you know, say or speak about it. Maybe we can have a further discussion about it. It's, it's, it's very subtle uh, because you can't go on a direct confrontation with these people because it's, you know, like, like a lo- yeah, yeah. <laughs> love and hate relationships. You don't want to antagonize them or you can just... Uh, a bit lead an example, you know, lead by examples. Like, you know, Deepavali just finished, you know, <laughs> so my relatives were there and they saw me, you know, cleaning, making mm-hmm. ha- house chores and they were so amazed. I said, this is nothing to be amazed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't have to even compliment, but you have never complimented your daughter or your mm-hmm. daughter-in-law. That w- was so, I mean... What's so, I so think, special? Yeah. yeah, or at least lead by an example. So mm-hmm. I, I think that would... Rather than I mean, talking is another. If it, that's another step, this this mm. the practices, daily practices might help to confront this as well. And yeah,
0: I, I think that's a really uh, good point to make because sometimes we don't have the language, and then people just don't want to listen, yeah. right? Because it's uncomfortable to know that you actually you're guilty of bad behavior, for example, right? Mm. You know, for for those who are in a more difficult position socially, mm. right? Because of uh, social status, because of stigmatisation, discrimination, how would they be able to counter if there's no law, right? If we say don't criminalise sexism, don't criminalise misogyny Mm -hmm. as hate speech, I mean, Nalini, you mentioned that there is no sort of um, agreement as to Mm -hmm. what hate Hate speech speech should be defined as, right? But is this something that is worth pushing for for people who are marginalized
1: like i said like i don't really uh, get into the terminology to be because hate speech for example in the context of hate speech is actually very different context by context country by country right but what we need especially in malaysian context for example what we need for um, especially for to protect the marginalized and everything, we need to have some sort of um, a legally protected, like equality act, for example, right? We, people mm. need to be equally protected under the law. Um, they need to feel they are pro- protected. They need to feel that they can, uh, you know, they can reach out for help and that somebody will listen to them. You know, we really need to have that protection as well. Every time when people ask about how we can move, um, you know, move forward, with, like countering hate speech again. Um, against like marginalized or minorities I have two ways of looking at it like one is legal but one is non-legal and I think non-legal is very very important because it comes with policies, it comes with practices, it comes with like for example um, a multi stakeholder kind of approach right like it's not just media for example, it's not just politicians, it's about schools, it's about education, it's about training teachers, it's about training judges for example It's, it's about everyone involved in the process so non-legal meaning that the entire society has to be trained in a way that you understand what the marginalized people are going through you and you should are able to understand some sort of speeches is actually have more danger and more consequences against some people in the society because who they are and where they came from you know having law doesn't mean like people's behavior will change but people' behavior will change when you have these sort of things taking place at the same time. For example, the book banning of gay is okay. You know, if we have more trainings, if we have more human rights approaches, you know, we wouldn't have that. The ban would have been yeah, one; it would have been, happened, yeah. you know, there won't be any ban. But secondly, the ban would have been like lifted, right? For example, so we need to have that sort mm. of. It's it's a very um, it's a larger kind of uh, impact, and that's why the non-legal is very, very important. I think I'll go back to the Rabat Plan of Action, for example. This is the international instrument, and and I think it's very important for us to apply that in the Malaysian context or any other context. Depends on, you know, your your the condition, but it's very important because it's a multi-stakeholder approach. It's, that means the entire society coming together and putting and saying that we need to counter hate against somebody just because they are different just because of their race and religion even if you look at Rabat plan of action all the suggestion is actually basically very non-legal but there's only one part is criminalization mm. so when we talk about criminalization is it's where the speech is exactly advocating for hater, discriminations and also creating hostile environment and violence then that sh- speech should be should be criminalized you know and that's what the Rabat also saying but why, why the are also taking other positions, a non-legal position, is because we believe the society cannot be changed by just having a law. And we all know how criminalization doesn't work in our context, right? So it's very important to have other kind of non-legal kind of practices so that we can actually deal with the real root causes of all the problems that we have, like even like gender stereotypes or pachyaka. It's, it's a root cause of so many things that are happening in our society. So we have to Deal with it from the non-legal perspective as well. One of the reasons why you also have eight speeches is also because the lack of information, lack of um, access to uh, information about certain community, for example, because there's not many stories about them. So people have these like misconceptions or their own opinion just by seeing whatever people tweeting or people are putting on Facebook. But there's no proper uh, information available. So in the absence of information, right, I think people have this misconception. So only if we have a lot of stories being told by the community that's marginalized, then people will be like, ah, oh, actually this is not true. You know, people were able to like make a decision based on the information that's available. So to counter hate, also we also need an environment where there's an information ecosystem. When you have an informed society, then there's no way you to have a hate towards each other, right? So that's that's what I believe,
0: yeah. That's really, I think, an important point. Like, we need to question our hate. Where is it coming from? Uh, What's sort of fueling it, right? Mm. Because I've met people who who use a singular experience Mm. of discrimination, Mm. and then it becomes a blanket sort of stereotype Mm. on the whole uh, particular race or religion, right? So people, all Christians are like this, Mm. or all Chinese Mm. are like this. But uh, you know this thing about telling stories. I think is also really critical because you know um, I was at this film festival by Freedom Film Network, mm. and they talked about you know what happened on 13 May 1969, right? And so many people who were there started standing up and talking and saying, mm. oh, this Chinese family saved me, and it's a Malay, you know, mm, it's a Malay mm, person." Mm. And you know, and Chinese people said, "Malays took us in, you know, to protect us from." From being killed, right? So, but we don't get to hear these stories. Yeah. This hate, Bharati, right? Mm-hmm. How do we sort of unpack that? Because sometimes the, even the reactions by uh, the state in terms of you know, agencies or ministries can be also uh, very defensive, right? Uh, so for example, like how, what happened to Ayn Husniza in terms of calling out rape culture, the rape joke, right? Mm-hmm. And then there, there was this whole <coughs> discussion online in social media about rape culture you know, being so pervasive in our society, what do we do? How do we, how do we sort of get those who are actually responsible to be also aware of the kind of culture that they're pushing across?
2: I think because of the dominant views or the, the dominant ideology in the society is very much male-dominated and very much patriarchal. Right? Then you want to fit in with the crowd, you know, you don't want to antagonise the crowd maybe in terms of challenging or or, or this normalization or, or even the misogynistic views and so on and so forth I, I still believe that the policies or laws would be very much instrumental right for something that's tangible for us to refer and you know make them accountable you know the oppressors or aggressors and whatsoever you know uh, you know by introducing uh, maybe gender sensitization across layers of government or institutions uh, which aimed at producing more sensitive and gender sensitive policies like, i think for that we don't have enough female lawmakers <laughs> you know we don't elect or send enough Female lawmakers, and I don't know whether those we, I mean, those that have been elected or sitting there, are also uh, very much critical about it or not. You know, that that's the quality of uh, lawmakers that we have. Like, there's another question, right? And I think the public can also act as a watchdog. You know, uh, which I think is happening probably a small segment of the society, has been always constantly critical, like the civil society, whether it's organisational or individual basis, right? I think the fundamental still goes back, start the conversation at home or yourself, you know, if you, if you feel there's a problem within yourself, you know, try to recognise that, acknowledge that you, you are, yourself have been holding that kind of views, you know? Or maybe like the example that earlier I cited, you know, try to work on, you know, house chores, like you know, redistribute <laughs> house chores. Maybe that that's the first probably the first step. Because because, you know, in, in I think KRI, Kazana Research Institute in 2018 cited a report saying that 60% of women Uh, Opted out for labor work, the workforce, because of house chores, you know, the unpaid care work. And they have been working like three hours longer than men on everyday basis when it comes to housework, the Mm. unpaid care work, you know. So these are the smallest steps that probably could have been taken, which I think works hand in hand uh, in terms of top down uh, approach as well as bottom up approach as well.
0: Moving forward, right, because uh, we're in a country where freedom of expression is heavily surveilled, censored, they're used as political weapons of authoritarian and dictatorial governments. What can we do to actually address sexism and misogyny? Because uh, we can see that there are root causes, or they are part of the root causes for inequality, right? Mm -hmm which then leads to the violence, which then leads to other forms of abuses, which then leads to stigmatisation, discrimination. What can we do as the public, and what can we ask the government to do as well?
1: Under the international law, for example, it requires uh, the state has an obligation to protect um The rights to equality and also freedom of expression of everyone, regardless of gender right women or lgbt or minorities, so I think the state has a very important role to play in this context, like I said earlier, like legislative and policy reforms and frameworks very, very important to effectively tackle uh, the issues of sexism, misogyny, or even patriarchal um, gender stereotypes and everything in, in society. That's very, very important. But also, as I mentioned earlier, we also need to have um, a very meaningful, effective dialogues and narrative and stories challenging these norms, you know? And it's, it, it has to be one day, it has to be said that, It was like that before, but it's no more. The future should be like it was yesterday kind of thing, you know, it's no more. So I think we need to have that ongoing discussions, ongoing debates. I know there will be a lot of consequences when people speak up, but I think we also, at the same time, have to create a very safe space um, for people to come out and tell their stories. And I think that story needs to be heard not just in social media but in a traditional media as well. It should be in newspapers, it should be in magazines, people were you know, whatever they read, it should be there and people learn from that. I think we need to, we need to um, create that sort of uh, uh, situation. But also so people also must understand that gender equality is not just a women issue. Yeah, it's um, we have to now we have to move forward by. Um making a man a lie in the movement but not saviour you know that's not what we want we want them to be a lie that means like they're part of it they also bring that responsibility to talk to other men to you know to teach them to educate them like what is sexism what is this and everything you know so I think they also have a role to play and so that is basically the movement is belongs to everyone who actually you know part of it mm-hmm. and we want to create a very safe space and also equal space for everyone and I think that and then I think we, will, we can see you know, change happen.
0: Thank you so much. So, we just heard from Nalini Alamulai of Article 19, an international organization working on freedom of expression, and Bharati Selvam, senior research officer at Women's Aid Organization, an organization that works on domestic violence and related women's rights issues. We talked about hate. Uh, and understanding that hate, I think uh, the, the points that were raised were really critical to to be able to address and sort of identify for ourselves whether we are being sexist or misogynistic when When Nalini talks about uh, the use of stories, I think that is also one way where people could counter such speech um, mm. safely so So these are really like interesting points and bharati the, the struggle of men who are trying to be allies, I think we hear you. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you again to Nalini and Bharati. If you enjoyed listening to Gossip, do follow us and stay tuned for our next episode on safe and inclusive learning environments. Can there be safety without inclusivity? You can find Chris Network on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Remember, Gossip is where alternative perspectives make sense.